We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And when we say God glorified, what we mean is that we exist for the purpose of seeing God receive praise, worship, honor, glory, credit, and fame. We believe that he is due. And so we want to spend our lives, our words, everything pointing back to Jesus. Right? It's why when you come here, we say our one desire is that when you leave here, that you'll marvel at Jesus more. that we chose the name Emmaus, the vision of our church is that we want to be a people who declare who Jesus is from all of the scriptures, that we talk about him, we proclaim him here in this pulpit, we do it in our kids ministry, through our songs, through our confessions, through the scriptures that we read, we do it with our neighbors and with our co-workers and with our children at home, that we are a people who declare who Jesus is and that as Jesus is being declared. Hearts are burning with the truth of who he is and eyes are being opened to believe it and there's faith being planted in the hearts of men and women. We want to see this transformation take place in people all across our city. That's what we're about. That's what we will spend ourselves on as long as God sees fit to leave a church called Emmaus in existence. Right, turn with me to Nehemiah 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 19. That's Nehemiah 5, verses 1 through 19. Nehemiah 5, verses 1 through 19. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep our daughters or, and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And their, and their fields and our vineyards, sorry, Because of the famine, and there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is of our flesh of our brothers, our children are their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for our men of our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and their words. I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are extracting interest each from his brother and I have great assembly against them. And they said to them, we are as far as we are able have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this extracting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been extracting from them. 
Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also took out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brother ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because the fear of God. I also preserved in the work of this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, they were at my table, 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on his people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for his people. Good morning. Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, On behalf of the pastors, if you're visiting, I just wanna say welcome. Uh, We're glad that you're here. I pray that, that, uh, that you have experienced hospitality and I pray that by the end of today, you will leave having been pointed to the uh, preeminence and the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ um, above anything that we do, our production value or uh, our facilities or anything else. We want you to leave deeply impressed by the person and work of Jesus. I just have a couple of quick announcements before we jump into our text today. Uh, first of all, I, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I have to say uh, thank you, not just to the residents that preached in our residency preaching symposium yesterday, but also to the, the many um, members, and many of you aren't even members yet, and you, you came to the preaching symposium to support your community group members and friends. And so I just want to say thank you uh, for doing that. We had probably 30 to 50 people filter in and out um, of that room upstairs throughout the whole day just to uh, be, be bodies, you know, in the room as these men were preaching. And so, uh, thank you. Hedger and I had the, uh, the delight to be stuffed with 12 hours worth of faithful, gospel-rich preaching. And so, thank you, residents, for blessing me that way. And uh, thank you to those of you who came to support them as well. Uh, the other thing is that in two weeks, two weeks from today, we have our membership meeting. So that's uh, April 7th. We are going to have more information, the, the exact uh, date and location sent to you uh, very soon. But if you're a member, please put it on your calendar. Make sure that you're there for that. It is going to be um, important that you're there for that. We have some incoming members to vote on, some incoming members who will be baptized. And um, we also uh, are going to, Lord willing, hear some ministry updates from the Higgins who are ministry partners out in Seattle, and also from Darian, who uh, is serving in North Africa. So we want to be there for that. Uh, Those um, family meetings are always a delight for me. And um, 
that's all the announcements I have for you. So we're going to go ahead and pray. Uh, in our pastoral prayer this morning, there's a couple of things I want to pray for. So last week, Pastor Josh prayed for two of our, uh, our mission partnerships. He prayed for the Higgins and also for Darian. This week, I want to pray for um, the, our church planting partnership, which is in northwest Italy. And uh, the church is called Jesus Encounter. That's led by uh, a pastor named Francesco Arco. They actually meet on Sundays, get this, at 5 p.m. their time, which is exactly uh, 10, 10 a.m. our time. They're seven hours ahead of us, which means they right now are gathered together to worship. So we get to pray for them in real time, which is pretty um, spectacular. So we're going to pray for them. We're also going to pray for uh, one of our members, Hannah Thomas, who is an advocate for a fusion team, which is uh, it's, it's basically a missions program for a school here in Kansas City. So she is, is leading out this team in West Africa, so we want to pray for her and her team as well. And then we'll pray for our time in the Word this morning. So, so let's go before the Lord and uh, pray for these things. A gracious triune God, thank you for this morning. What a joy it is to gather with brothers and sisters to sing and pray and read and listen and worship. We are here by your grace. God, you have done a great work in saving us. And every Sunday is a testament to your powerful grace. Give us eyes to see our gatherings as such. And Lord, this morning, our hearts yearn for our brothers and sisters across the globe who are gathering right now in Geneva. This work of yours, of which Emmaus Church is a part, Lord, this work is a global work, and we praise you for what you are doing in and through Francesco and Claudia and the saints at Jesus' encounter. May their gathering this Lord's Day be sweet. Lord, please speak through Francesco, and may your word go out and effectively build up the church accordingly. May those who gather there who do not know you, may they come to saving faith and be adopted into the family of God. Lord, we long to call them brothers and sisters. And may the saints who are there be encouraged as they press on into godliness. Lord, we also pray for our sister Hannah as she is there in West Africa with a few other sisters ministering, being a gospel minister there, reaching out to uh, the, specifically, Lord, we, we lift up the, the couple of uh, guys that they met in their English club who want to talk about the divinity of Christ. I pray that you give them wisdom and uh, give them memory of, of your word and the right things to say, and we pray that you would soften the hearts of those guys that they're speaking with. Lord, we also just pray that you would keep them from discouragement as they uh, surely feel very far away from community and friends and uh, their brothers and sisters here. So may they be encouraged um, draw near to them even right now in this moment, and may they uh, not, may, may you keep them from despair, um, from, from uh, just being weary of the ministry there. Give them energy so they can persevere. And now, Lord, we pray for our time and your word this morning. Your tone in this passage is severe, and we trust that many of us are in need of confrontation and rebuke. But even so, gracious Father, may we hear your word of correction aright. 
May we hear your word of correction as beloved children. May the context of your fatherly love surround the conviction from this text. And may we say, like Hosea, Lord, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. May your conviction lead us to greater depths of communion with you. And Lord, many others of us have been brutalized by the sins of others and need to be reminded of your heart for the destitute and the oppressed. For those of us who are thusly in need, let us hear loudly and unmistakably your love for us in Christ. To accomplish all of these things is beyond the ability of a sermon prepared by a mere man. And so, Holy Spirit, please take my words and with them preach to each listener a better sermon than the one that I prepared. We beg for you to help in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This passage of ours in Nehemiah chapter 5 teaches us what God thinks about oppression. It reveals to us God's burning heart for the oppressed, for the oppressor, and it points to his absolutely scandalous and powerful way of dealing with oppression. That's what we're going to look at today. Last week, we saw serious opposition to the work of God's people from without. If you remember Sanballat and Tobiah, the enemies of Israel worked hard to make the people of Israel miserable. The people of God, their work was threatened by the external force of persecution. This week, we see the people of God threatened as well. Only, their threat in today's passage is far more insidious. And it's far more dangerous, I think. Rather than being in danger from the external force of persecution, they are in danger from the internal force of faithlessness. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and, and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Yet our, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children is as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. We learn here that while the people of God were hard at work, working on building up the wall and fending off the threat of outside opposition, they were being stretched thin. A portion of the people were being mistreated, and up until now, their mistreatment had gone unnoticed due to outside distractions. But the pressure had now come to a breaking point. And, quote, a great outcry of the people and their wives burst out. And the complaints were varied, right? We see the complaint in verse 2, was that there was not enough food. So the sacrifice of the people was beginning to take a toll and the food to persons ratio couldn't be tolerated any longer. 
The complaint in verse three was that the people were forced to mortgage out their property just to make ends meet. And the complaint in verses four and five was that others were even coerced into slavery. So things were bad in Israel. Things were bad in Jerusalem. A portion of the people were being taken advantage of. And their plight had now become impossible to miss. And we see in verse 6, Nehemiah's first reaction. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. The outcry that reached Nehemiah's ears was an account of injustice. And the injustice made Nehemiah angry. And this anger is righteous. We learn later on from this passage that Nehemiah is so outraged by this injustice out of his love for his fellow Israelite and zeal for God. Did you get that? It is reverence for God that sparked anger in Nehemiah's heart. Did you know that it is righteous to be angry about injustice? It is righteous to feel anger when people make a mockery of God's name. It is righteous to feel anger when others are unjustly taken advantage of. There is, there is nothing noble about being an unmoved stoic who is unfazed by evil. Jesus himself wasn't that way. We saw last year in the Gospel of John him turning over tables. In John chapter 2, Jesus was moved to anger by sin and injustice. Pastor Josh mentioned last week that Nehemiah's prayer against Sanballat and Tobiah was an imprecatory prayer. It was a prayer against them. And the book of Psalms is full of prayers like this. This is the thing that we, we often forget. Imprecatory prayers are given by God to us in order for us to offer an expression to the feeling of righteous anger against evil. A couple of weeks ago when we were in Italy, we spent an evening ministering to women in the prostitution industry. So we sent out groups of a couple of women to talk and pray and share the gospel and a couple of men to, to watch from a distance while the rest of us stayed behind in one location to pray for our team in real time as they were talking and ministering to the women. And one of the missionaries who is behind this whole ministry, while we were praying, she told us a few of the heartbreaking stories of the victims of human trafficking that she's encountered over her time of doing this ministry. She told us of one girl who was adopted at a young age and then pimped out by her adopted parents. So she grew up as a prostitute. And eventually, she had a daughter of her own. And when she tried to escape, her adopted parents, her adopted parents decided to essentially hold her daughter, their granddaughter, as hostage, threatening to harm her child if she should ever try to escape again. That is now what this woman thinks of when she hears the word adoption. That beautiful gospel adorning illustration of adoption, right? Where, whereby it's supposed to point us to the father's unconditional love that he shows upon us when he 
embraces us and brings us into his family and gives us his name. That's what adoption is supposed to illustrate. Not so for this woman. That illustration has been mangled and stripped from her. Adoption, that word adoption, is now an obstacle to the gospel. Not a beautiful illustration for it. That should make us burn with anger. That that illustration of the gospel has been stripped from her. And listen, that kind of evil is what imprecatory psalms are for. That's why God has given them to us. We pray against injustice out of reverence for God and love for neighbor. But we must hasten to add this. Anger isn't Nehemiah's only response. Look at verse 7. The beginning of verse 7, he says, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. In other words, Nehemiah channeled his anger. He didn't fly off the hinges. He was calculated. And let this be a lesson for us, brothers and sisters. It is possible to have the right emotion and the wrong reaction. It really is possible. Examples on social media are legion. <laughs> there is no shortage of reasons to get outraged by sin and injustice in this world, right? There's no shortage of reasons to get outraged. And it's right for us to feel outraged by sin and injustice. But we have to marry our righteous indignation with self-control and thoughtfulness, so let us, let us take our cue from Nehemiah and take counsel with ourselves before reacting. The, imp the impact, and the, the reason is because the impact of Nehemiah's righteous indignation is actually increased because of his determination to channel it accordingly. He doesn't just fly off the handles and start yelling at people. He takes counsel with himself, and then his reaction and uh, produces marvelous fruit. Look at verse seven. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Nehemiah brings very specific charges against the guilty party. And he speaks first to the nobles, and then he holds a great assembly to, to bring charges to the whole people formally. And he can do this because, as verse 14 tells us, he's the governor. He's been uh, appointed the governor and therefore has the authority to hold a great assembly and people have to listen. In other words, he exercises his authority and influence to advocate for the marginalized. And the first thing he does in this large assembly is go straight for their consciences. He publicly names their hypocrisy. We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Nehemiah highlights the fact that these advantaged Jews are treating their own brothers the same way that outside nations have treated them. For generations, they should know better. 
right? They're, they're, like, they're like the unforgiving servant that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, who was forgiven much by his moneylender, but who greedily and stingily mistreated his own fellow servant as a fraction of the price. These Jews had tasted slavery and captivity their whole lives. And now they were taking the first opportunity they could to play the part of the oppressor. And Nehemiah shines a spotlight on their hypocrisy. You ought to know better, he says. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. They had been outed. Have you ever been here? I've been here, confronted of sin, disabused of the ability to defend my wicked conduct. And that's, that's where, that's where uh, these Jews are left after Nehemiah brings his charge against them. And then he continues in verse 9, after they are dumbstruck. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? So now Nehemiah appeals to reverence for God, and he insinuates that their behavior proves that they do not fear God. If they had reverence for God, their behavior would be totally different. Now listen, it's really important for me to point out right now that what they were doing was technically legal, according to the law of the land. They were breaking no Persian law by imposing high interest rates that forced their brothers and sisters into slavery. They were breaking no Persian law by, by breaking up families, by buying and selling their own kinsmen, which means that even though Nehemiah held a position of authority on account of his Persian status as governor, the case that he brought against the people wasn't predicated on Persian law. He's not, he's not, he doesn't have a case against them as a governor. He has a case against them as an Israelite, as one of the people of God. This is because he held his own people to a different standard. They belonged to another kingdom. They were citizens of Zion. They were the people of God. So even though they broke no law of the land, he still stuck his nose in their business. He stuck his nose in their business because they dishonored God with their legal business practices. It is possible to behave wickedly without breaking the law. Pornography is both legal and evil. Having sex with your boyfriend outside of marriage is both legal and evil. Abortion is both legal and evil. And listen, buying and selling slaves and segregation and denying voting privileges based on race or gender and redlining, all of these practices used to be legal, but they were always evil. And the people of God are held accountable, not just to the law of the land, but to God's holy and righteous standard. Is it legal is not the only relevant question for the person of God. When the people of God ignore and despise his righteous standards, God is dishonored, and his enemies are given cause to slander him. I heard recently about a large church whose elder team has filed a lawsuit against their ex-members for speaking out against them. Okay, so this is legal, what they're doing, and it's awful. 
It is giving the enemies of the cross occasions for boasting. If your pastors ever start to file a lawsuit against ex-members, you better start taking us through the steps of church discipline. There is, no, there is no excuse for that kind of conduct. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies, he asks. In other words, you may be living in this world, but you are to live according to your heavenly citizenship. Stop acting like the rest of the world with your dealings with one another. You are held accountable to a different set of ethics. Don't you care at all that your behavior gives the enemies of God occasions to scoff? Isn't God's reputation among the pagans worth so much more than whatever you could stand to gain by taking advantage of your own brothers? This is what he's asking. And we see this in verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So Nehemiah, after he has he is dished out all of these formal charges against them, he calls them to repentance, full-on restitution. And he appeals to Scripture in this, right? So the book of Leviticus gives instructions for the people of God in the case that something like this should ever happen. If things ever get so bad in the land that people have to start mortgaging out their property and even themselves to one another just to, just to get by, they could only be slaves for six-year periods. Every seventh year was the year of Jubilee when all Jewish slaves, no matter how severe their debt was, were to be freed, and all their homes and property was to just be freely given back to them. That's every seven years. So Nehemiah is, in effect, saying, let's year of Jubilee this situation. Let's stop acting like Persia is our home and start treating each other like brothers again. Let's start treating each other as if we're exiles in a foreign land. Let's start treating each other as if this is a really important situation. And we, and we can't just settle down and start living according to worldly practices. Let's be different. And then we see this in verse 12, which is amazing. We see, then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garments and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and empty. And the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. By God's grace, the people respond well. They humbly receive Nehemiah's correction, and they thoroughly repent, and then they worship. And let that be a lesson for us all. The lesson is that praise is what confession and repentance lead to. We say this over and over at Emmaus, repentance only ever yields life. Repentance only ever yields life. Confession, and, and we have to say this over and over and over again because confession and repentance feels like death. 
It does. But the ability to praise God with a clean conscience on the other side of repentance feels like a resurrection. That's what's waiting on the other side of, your, of the death of your confession and repentance. So heed this invitation. Humble yourself under the heavy hand of God's correction and repent thoroughly. It is worth it. I can tell you from experience, it is worth it. And now I want us to see Nehemiah's self-sacrificial conduct in contrast to the self-advancing conduct of the Israelites he had just confronted. We see, in other words, how Nehemiah is morally capable of bringing this charge against the, the Israelites. And then we see that he is doing so as an act of worship, that he is, he is offering up his self-sacrificial life as an, as an offering of worship to God. This is what we read, starting in verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so. Because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all the servants were gathered, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Verse 18. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. And we read this in verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. What a marvelous example of faithful exile living. No matter how privileged or positioned he was in Persia, Nehemiah never forgot that he belonged first and foremost to the kingdom of God. What God thought of his conduct outweighed every other consideration of what he could do or gain. And this way of living, this way of living as if, as if every decision could be offered up to God for him to commend, this way of living both caused and was caused by Nehemiah's perpetual prayer life. We've talked about this a lot throughout this series. Nehemiah was a prayerful man, and these things fed into one another. Nehemiah's constant communication with God increased his reverence for God, and his reverence for God drove him into constant communication with God. These things work together. The more you pray, the more you love God. The more you love God, the more you're compelled to pray. And, and Nehemiah's habit to always live in the sight of God, offering up his every moment in devoted worship to God. Every single moment was something to offer up and worship to God. That way of living is instructive for us. He's an example for us. This is what we should strive for, right? But even more importantly than that, we learn from this passage what Jesus is like. This passage is as strong an illustration of Christ's work as any 
in the book of Nehemiah. In this passage, in other words, we see Nehemiah as a prefigured, foreshadowed Christ. Don't we almost hear the sound of our Savior's voice in Nehemiah's prayer? Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Doesn't that almost sound like Jesus? That sounds like my Jesus. It is impossible for us worshipers of Jesus to read this description of Nehemiah's deferential, self-denying, self-impoverishing behavior. It's impossible for us to read that description and not think of the path of descent that Jesus went on for us. Like Nehemiah, but infinitely more so, Christ was entitled to everything. Like Nehemiah's countrymen, but infinitely more so, we were starving and impoverished and desperately needy. And we, like the Israelites in Nehemiah's day, we scrape and bite and steal and use and abuse one another. We are consumed by our greed and take every opportunity given to us to advance, even when it means stepping on the heads of our brothers and sisters. We will take every opportunity to advance our own name. And we are in need of a truer and better Nehemiah who can use his position to advocate for us and who can deny himself and become poor so that by his poverty we might become rich and who can confront our sin in such a way that we're positioned to confess and repent of our sin. That's what Jesus does for us. How, how could Nehemiah 5 not remind us of 2 Corinthians 8, 9, which says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Gosh, it's like, it's like God is the author of this whole thing or something. <laughs> now this leads me to the first of my four pastoral charges. I have four charges to leave you with this morning. Pastoral charge number one. This is for the believers. It's simply this. Behold Jesus, who becomes poor to enrich our impoverished estate. Behold Jesus, who becomes poor to enrich our impoverished estate. At the beginning of this series, I told you that while the name of Jesus is nowhere contained in the pages of Nehemiah, yet every page longs for his name. And this is how his name is longed for here. Nehemiah is a great leader. He's a loving leader. He's a sacrificial leader who denies himself comfort and ease to make sure that his people are provided for physically. That's a great example. But we need more than physical provision. We need new hearts. We need safe passage into our heavenly homeland. We need new hearts and minds that are free from the enslaving power of sin and fit for long-term obedience. And this is the chilling reminder that we're left with at the end of the book of Nehemiah. This, this may be a spoiler for some of you, but I just need to tell you, the book of Nehemiah does not have a happy ending. It doesn't. All throughout the book, we feel this question boiling up. It, will Israel finally be faithful? Will they finally do it? after losing their land and living in exile, after God strips everything from them and puts them in exile, 
And after God graciously brings them back, brings a remnant back to Israel to rebuild the temple, after the wall is reconstructed and the people are reestablished, will they respond differently now with this fresh start? Will they finally obey? And the answer at the end of Nehemiah is no. No, after all the deliverance that God has brought this people through, after all the revival and the reform, after Nehemiah sacrificed to provide for the people, to set them up for obedience, he's teed them up so perfectly. After all of that, the book ends with Nehemiah frustrated because the people again go back to their sinful habits. The same habits that got them in this mess in the first place. Listen, there is no happy ending in the book of Nehemiah because there is no happy ending without Jesus. Until Jesus comes, there is no resolution. Just the same old tired repetition of sin. This is true of the book of Nehemiah and it's true of every individual's story. There is no happy ending without Jesus. But of course, The story of Nehemiah doesn't end with the book of Nehemiah. The story of Nehemiah doesn't end with the end of chapter 3. It doesn't end with Nehemiah frustrated and the people returning to their sin and folly like a dog returns to its vomit. That's not how the story of Nehemiah ends. The story of Nehemiah continues on and reaches the high point of human history. When the truer and better Nehemiah accomplishes far more than full bellies with his self-sacrifice. Nehemiah's story is our story. It's the story with Jesus at the center. In other words, the attention of the book of Nehemiah is fixed not on itself, but resolutely forward in the timeline. The attention of the book of Nehemiah is fixed forward because there is no resolution in Nehemiah. So we're looking forward to some other kind of deliverance. It's fixed resolutely forward to King Jesus. So let us fix our attention there as well. As Nehemiah looks forward in human history to Jesus, let us look back in human history to Jesus. Behold Jesus, who became poor to enrich our impoverished estate. Behold Jesus, who emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and dying a traitor's death. Behold Jesus who says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Behold Jesus who says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Behold Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are poor and All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your weary souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Behold Jesus who saw us laboring under the weight of death and sin and slavery and did not leave us to wallow there alone, but he came to rescue us. Behold Jesus, whose love for his people and zeal for his father makes him angry at sin and oppression. Behold Jesus, who revered the father more perfectly than Nehemiah could ever dream of, whose obedient life was a perfect and living picture of the father's will. Behold Jesus, 
who took on all the guilt and failure of his people and was smashed under the hammer of the full weight of divine wrath for it on the cross. Behold Jesus, who was buried in a borrowed tomb for three days. Behold Jesus, who was resurrected and thus vindicated as the only righteous one, the only one who could satisfy in time the wrath that takes an eternity for hell-bound sinners to bear. Behold Jesus, who ascended to the right hand of the Father to send the Holy Spirit to offer his perfect obedience to his people so that his perfect conformity to the Father's will might replace our unconformity. Behold Jesus, who intercedes for his people right now and says, in effect, remember, O God, all that I have done for this people. And behold Jesus, who will guarantee that all accounts will be paid. Every evil deed done will be consumed by the infinite, fiery vengeance of a holy God. This Jesus will see to it that every evil deed done to you and by you will get its due, either on the cross when he takes it upon himself or in hell when he returns in fury as a sin-banishing king. So behold Jesus. That's your first pastoral charge. Charge number two, be believers, care for the oppressed out of reverence for God. Listen, once we behold Jesus like that, we can never see anyone else the same way again. No longer can we regard any human being according to the flesh, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. When we behold this Jesus, we become like him, and we begin to love the things that he loves, and we begin to hate the things that he hates. We make his war our war, and this Jesus hates the oppression of his creatures. He hates cruelty. Your reverence for God will orient your heart to be tender towards those who suffer injustice. And listen, a person who reveres God will yearn for justice and will sometimes even stick his or her nose into the business of others out of reverence for God. So, Believers, care for the oppressed out of reverence for God. Charge number three, believers, be faithful in your exile living. Always remember that in this life, you are a sojourner and an alien. We want to be the kind of people who are faithful throughout our entire exile here on earth. God forbid we ever settle down into a spirit of at-homeness in this age. This is not our kingdom. We belong to another. So view one another in light of eternity. View outsiders in light of eternity. View your money, your business, your security, your safety. View all of those things as temporary stewardships from God because they are. That's what they are. Does the way that you spend your time, invest your money, think about your relationships and belongings, Does the way that you do all of those things, does it communicate a tight or a loose grip on the things of this earth? May we never settle down too much into this fallen world. Listen, our heart cry should ever be, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, now. Come now. 
Come and set up your kingdom and reign here on earth. Come and swallow up death and wipe every tear from every eye that looks to you in faith. If at any point we find it hard to pray that prayer, if at any point we are tempted to pray instead, come Lord Jesus, come later. If at any point we are tempted to pray that, we can know that we have settled down too comfortably and have forgotten that we are in exile. So that's our third charge. Be faithful in your exile living. And charge number four, this one is for any believers or any unbelievers who are here today. Any of you who are visiting and are not Christians, listen. The charge for you is to recognize your poverty and oppression and come to Jesus. There is no getting around it. There's no way to spin it. There's no way to soften it. You are in need. Listen, I, I, I have a question for you. If you're an unbeliever, have you yet experienced the poverty and desolation of your sin? Have you yet experienced the slavery of your freedom from God? Have you yet found yourself crying out in desperation for deliverance? I pray that you do soon. I pray that you realize your desperately needy state soon, that you realize the enslavement of your freedom from God, your enslavement to sin, because your situation is far more dire than you think. Your poverty is far deeper than you think. You are a slave to sin. And listen, this unforgiving taskmaster will drag you to hell. So be free of it. Be free of it. Come to Jesus and ask for him to advocate for you. If you come to him, you will find him to be a great liberator. This sweet Savior sympathizes with your weaknesses, and he offers to free you from the overwhelming burden of the guilt of your sin. More than that, he offers to free you from the overwhelming strength of the power of your sin. This thing that is enslaving to you, that drags you around by the, by the ring in your snout. You who are the oppressor of the fragile. You who are oppressed and desolated by the guilt of your sin. And you who are oppressed and brutalized by the sins of others. All of you, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and receive his forgiveness. Receive his restoration. Until you do, you may not partake of this meal that we're about to partake in. This meal is for Christians alone those who trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus alone to establish our right standing before God. This meal is for those who have said and who say, I am poor and in need, and I will look to the provision of Jesus alone to sustain me. And it's for those who say, we are citizens of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are not truly at home until we feast in the house of Zion. And this meal is a promise that we cling to that one day our Savior will return. This meal is for those who can say that. And if you cannot say that honestly, don't take this meal. It wins you no spiritual points in the sight of God. Instead, sit in your seat 
and pray and consider Jesus and just know that when we take this meal, when we take this meal that for you to observe, we are in taking it, inviting you to get in on all of the promises that this meal represents. So ask those of us who take this meal what it means to become a Christian. We would, we would love to tell you. If we're taking this meal, it means that we would love to tell you how you can meet our friend Jesus. And if you are a Christian, I invite you to join me in this meal. After I pray, I'm gonna ask for the believers here to come down to my left. You'll take from the bread and the cup and return to my right. We do have gluten-free option for those of you who are allergic to gluten on the right. Let's pray. I'm gonna, I've borrowed this prayer from a Puritan, and uh, this is from a book called Valley of Vision. This, is, this will serve as our, our prayer and conclusion of the sermon. So, um, yeah, let's go before the Lord. God of all good, you have prepared for us a feast. And though we are unworthy to sit down as a guest, we wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide ourselves beneath his righteousness. When we hear his tender invitation, and see his wondrous grace, we cannot hesitate, but must come to you in love. While we gaze upon the emblems of our Savior's death, may we ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood, shed, shed my blood to purchase, uh, to, to blot out your guilt opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. In the supper, we remember his eternal love, his boundless grace, and his infinite compassion. As the outward elements nourish our bodies, so may your indwelling spirit invigorate our souls until the day that we hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Amen. Church, I love you guys. Come and partake. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.